Hampton versus Kohler. Mr. McNeil. Good morning, Your Honor. Is my audio working? Yes, it is. May it please the court. My name is Don McNeil and I represent Bruce Hampton, the appellant in this matter. We respectfully request that the district court orders that was filed on July 25th, 2019 be reversed and this matter be remanded from trial. We contend that the district court committed reversible error because it failed to view the facts in the light most favorable to Mr. Hampton when it considered and resolved issues and material fact in reaching its decision. Rather than staying within the four corners of the party's agreement, the district court reached beyond those four corners to consider extrinsic evidence and not the facts in the light most favorable to Mr. Hampton. Summary judgment is inappropriate in this case for the following issues. The purpose and meaning of the party's contract, whether Mr. Hampton, his termination was involuntary, specifically who initiated the termination and the circumstances surrounding the reasons for Mr. Hampton's termination. The district court improperly considered and weighed the evidence in the light most favorable to Mr. Kohler and not Mr. Hampton. The court is aware this matter turns on the post-closing agreement, which is two sentences. I'd like to go through a couple of items and highlight what we have addressed in our briefing. The two sentences said, first, he should be, must be still employed to be eligible to receive the escrow payment, his pro rata share. The second sentence is the one that's operative here, and that is that he is not required to be still employed if his termination was without cause by the company. The district court, first at page 14, goes outside of the record to talk about what the purpose of the escrow agreement was. And the court found, without any evidence in the record, that the purpose was for predictability and protections throughout the transition period. This is an escrow agreement, and Exhibit D to Mr. Harrisall's affidavit shows how the escrow was to be paid out. This is the pro rata share of Mr. Hampton's shares that he owned as a minority shareholder when his company was sold. There was $4 million placed in escrow, and he had a pro rata share of about $164,000. There's nothing in the record that said this is only for predictability and continuation during a transition period. Instead, we know, because November 2017, when the escrow payment was paid out, there was only a nominal decrease in the escrow payment. He would have received about $6,000 less, or 3% less. Second, at page 15, the court spent two pages talking about constructive discharge, which was not even an issue Mr. Hampton has raised in this matter. Third, at page 16 of the district court's order, this is, I think, is the key to the reason of why we think there was reversible error, and this should be remanded for trial, is because the court viewed the light most favorable to Mr. Kohler to find that Mr. Hampton had expressed a willingness to leave before obtaining renewals of customer agreements, and that was with a major customer. Mr. Hampton, in his affidavit and his deposition, consistently said what had happened here is he was given new job responsibilities, which included international travel. 
he went to his immediate supervisor and asked whether that was something that they could reconsider because he had a senior in high school and elderly parents that were living with him and that he wanted to be home for them. All he was asking for was reconsideration on job responsibilities and whether that would work for them. And instead, after having a meeting with the CEO, after speaking to Mr. Spidell and Mr. Finnessy, several days later, the company offered him a severance package to depart. That 30 days later, more than 30 days later, became effective. When the court found that he had expressed a willingness to leave before obtaining renewals of agreements with a major customer, that is not in the light most favorable to Mr. Hampton. Instead, the light most favorable to Mr. Hampton is that he went to them and said, do I need to do this international travel? That is not something I have done in the past. Can I do something different? Will you work with me on this? And instead, they came back to him and said, your value to us, in essence, is we just need you around to help us renew a contract with a major customer. Counsel, I have, Judge Loken, I have trouble under, uh, perceiving the materiality of which of the uh, exchange you're talking about because the separation agreement came after that. Yes, Your Honor, and uh, thank you. The, uh, Judge Loken, the materiality it, it is exactly what we we believe should have happened here is you don't need to go any further than the separation agreement. The separation agreement in its plain and ambiguous language said that it was Kodalski that wished to reach an amicable separation with Mr. Hampton. And then it was Kodalski who presented the separation agreement. Their attorneys drafted the separation agreement. They're the ones that presented it to Mr. Hampton. He did not initiate any of that. And then the language contained in the separation agreement is also plain and ambiguous, and it says the party's separation is without cause by either party. That's saying in plain and ambiguous language that Mr. Hampton did not initiate this. Let me, let me stop you. Are, are you arguing, and I think you are, that termination without cause and separation without cause have the same meaning? Yes, I am, Your Honor. And what, what authority do you have for that? The dictionary would not support that. Um, Your Honor, I think the dictionary does support me on that. The, the separation and the termination, would, considered in the language that's contained in the separation agreement, says that the company is initiating the termination. This is not initiated by Mr. Hampton. So the, the, the fact in the light most favorable to Mr. Hampton is that the company presented a separation agreement and it was their attorneys that drafted this. Your Honor, I go on to my fourth point in the district court's order on page 17 of the order where the court references that Kodalski wanted to keep Mr. Hampton around until um, it said April 2017, but remember the escrow payment became due in November 2017. I don't know where the district court picked up that April date. That's the wrong date. It's November 2017, but here's the point when we're reading the light and most favorable to Mr. Hampton. Is everybody happy here? That's what's going on here. The, the, the clause that required continued employment was to keep Kodalski happy, and they wanted to have this this employee, they liked him. That's what their testimony was. 
It's just they didn't need him anymore. And how do I know that? Because if you look at the lights most favorable to Mr. Hampton, we know, first of all, everybody testified, no loss of revenue for Kodalski. They didn't lose anything by losing Mr. Hampton. Second, very little... Counsel, let me ask you, in that regard, does the record reflect what the difference in, in monetary value would be between uh, the the um, uh, the uh, post the the escrow payment being sought in this lawsuit and the benefits the extra benefits provided in the separation agreement? Um, I, I think it does, Your Honor. I think Exhibit D to Mr. Harris does affidavit has the um, um, accountants. Um, numbers that show how much he was entitled to receive and then we also know that in the end when it came time his the amount he should have received was about one hundred fifty five thousand dollars so it's um the, the difference is about three percent so for it, so so he and up, wait three percent so the the extra benefits i mean the thirty seven five hundred and uh, the three months health, health health benefits and the salary bonuses to separation and the two hundred dollars an hour until April thirty, all that adds up to three uh, percent less than the hundred and fifty-five thousand. Is that the minority? No, no, I'm misunderstanding your question. No, I, I'm saying you can do the math. You can see that the three percent reduction in the escrow is nominal. I mean, it's certainly our position. It's it, it, if we had a trial that that escrow was just for unrealized liabilities and debts that the company bought. I don't understand the escrow. No, my, my question is entirely different. I'm, I'm looking at, I'm, I'm viewing, I'm trying to question whether this isn't a, whether this isn't a mutually agreed settlement in which he gave up by not being terminated without cause, gave up 155000 and he got that array of extra benefits described in the district court's opinion. And if you tried and, and has anybody valued those? It looks to me like they would equal or exceed exceed one hundred and fifty thousand. Um, Your Honor, it would not exceed that one hundred fifty thousand dollars. If I understand, okay, so I, that's why I asked you to have. They, is there somewhere I can go to quantify? Um, other than the separation agreement, I don't, do not think you can quantify the value of that separation agreement. It gives you the thirty-seven thousand five hundred severance payment and some benefits, but it does not give you any additional how much he was paid to to help out because he certainly can send you well, that's, no that, no that's that's argument I, I i was just looking for facts thank you yes okay and your honor if i the um video does not give me my time but i i'm calculating i only have a few more minutes but here's the couple other points Mr. McGill, I you have four minutes thank you judge um so you go back to whether kodalski was happy on this deal we know that there's no loss in revenue because that's what both Kodalski's executives testified. Second of all, there's very little reduction in the escrow, 3%. So does that mean Mr. Kohler lost out at very much money? No, he didn't even lose out any money. Third of all, did Mr. Hampton's position get replaced, which would be more akin to somebody who had quit his job? No, they testified they didn't even replace him, that they just took his job responsibilities and gave it to others. Fourth, did they keep him on the payroll? No. Kodalski got the benefit of not even having him on the payroll. Fifth, did Kodalski, were, were they happy because they got what they needed out of him in the consulting agreement? Yes, they did. They were able to renew that major customer. And then finally, 
the agreement, the post-closing agreement between Kohler and Hampton, did Kohler lose out anything? No, he didn't lose out anything. This would be a total windfall for him because he didn't lose out anything. Finally, Your Honor, um, to pick up on what uh, Judge Loken has just pointed out, is it's our position that the district court should have stayed within the four corners of that separation agreement. And that language said that it was Kodalski that initiated the termination and not Mr. Hampton. And that would entitle Mr. Hampton to receive his share of the pro rata escrow that was available to him. And Your Honor, based upon those reasons, we respectfully request that this matter be reversed and remanded for trial. Thank you, Mr. McNeil. You'll have about two and a half minutes left for rebuttal. Mr. Harris-Fall. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court, counsel. This appeal essentially requires that the court resolve three issues for adjudication. Number one, was Mr. Hampton terminated by Kodalski? Number two, was the termination without cause as described in the employment agreement? And number three, does the resolution of either of those issues require the determination of material disputed issues of fact? The answer to all three of those questions is no. The post-closing agreement unambiguously states that in order for the exception to continuous employment to apply, he must be terminated by the corporation without cause as provided in the older milestone employment agreement. That language in the post-closing agreement references and incorporates the express without cause provision of the employment agreement. And there was no attempt to comply with that provision requirement of 30 days written notice prior to termination, section 16B of the employment agreement. Moreover, since the termination was in fact initiated by Hampton, and I'll talk more about that in a moment, but because it was initiated by Hampton, it could not... Counsel, this is Judge Smith. How do we know it was initiated by Hampton? What record fact tells us that? Let me find the sites to the record, Your Honor. First of all, in the initial discussion where this came up, and my colleague was discussing this in his presentation, where Mr. Hampton was complaining about the travel that was required, his own testimony is, and this is Hampton deposition pages, page 36, beginning at line 9 through 22. He told Mark Greer, his immediate supervisor, the president of the local organization, that he wanted Kodelsky to treat him like Mark Thompson. Mr. Thompson, it is undisputed in the record, was fired without cause by Kodelsky. In other words, he hadn't done anything wrong. He was fired without cause, so Mr. Hampton was asking to be fired because that's what they did with Thompson. This was the first time there was a discussion of his future after they discussed the change in his responsibilities, and he starts talking about a separation. Additionally, he admits he was... Is that what the company did? Did the company treat him that way? Well, no, not entirely, because... If the company fired him for cause, then wouldn't that be to Mr. Hampton's advantage? With Mr. Thompson, the company initiated the termination, Your Honor. The company, and we have a declaration from Mr. Thompson in the record that supports this, that he did not want to leave, 
and he had no intention of leaving, but the company gave him no choice and terminated him without cause. That testimony is unopposed in this record. Uh, so it was clearly a different situation because Mr. Thompson did not want to leave the organization and uh, Kodelsky wanted him to leave. On the other hand, for Mr. Uh, for Mr. Hampton, the record is replete with examples of how badly Kodelsky wanted him to stay. In the testimony of those executives from Kodelsky, they wanted him to remain, quote, in perpetuity, end of does quote. The, counsel, does the record show what Mr. Hampton's view of his statement meant in terms of when he said, I want what the other person got, what his intentions were in that statement? I don't believe it does, Your Honor. I think we only have in the record his actual words. So what you're presenting is a construction of what he said as opposed to an undisputed meaning. Well, he said he wanted to be treated like Thompson. And to the the only thing that the only context that's relevant. So you, want us to, you want us to read that the way you read it, as opposed to the way perhaps he would. He has not proffered a contrary interpretation, Your Honor. There is nothing in the record that would suggest any kind of contrary view of that remark. And additionally, we have the statements by. Um, uh, but, uh, counsel, as Judge Loken, I don't understand why it matters that the termination was was initiated by Hampton. Well, what mat what matters is the term uh, the termination was was not without cause. It was a, a mutually agreed separation. That's exactly right, Your Honor. And, and, and there, therefore, it doesn't doesn't fit 16b or the PCA. You're precisely correct, Your why, Honor. Why are we why are we deviating from from that? Reading of that's just that's just staying within the contracts. I, I agree it is, but Judge Frank went at it in a slightly different direction, Your Honor. He was focusing on who initiated the termination for purposes of the by the company language. And I think he was he was taking a lead here from the uh, other district court opinions that we had cited, uh, Kravinsky and Willinson, where the court adopted a, a similar mode of analysis using similar contract language to number one conclude that this was not ambiguous language uh, but you're absolutely correct there are there are two provisions here under the employment agreement the old milestone employment agreement there's 16a that addresses mutual consent of Kadelsky and Hampton and then there is 16b that allows for a without cause termination by Kadelsky but would have required 30 days written notice something that never occurred and since under the rules of contract construction, the more specific clause should govern over the more general, 16A, mutual consent, is clearly more applicable here than 16B when there wasn't even a fulfillment of the notice requirement. The, uh, the only evidence that Mr. Hampton offers, and, it, and I agree with you, Judge Loken, that 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 is as far as you need to go but to the extent well, yeah. it doesn't even matter whether this was 16a it just wasn't 16b and if it wasn't 16b then it, then it is not uh, then the PCA provision isn't triggered am I wrong about that no your honor you're absolutely right but the uh, again just just to help the court understand the way judge Frank was looking at it uh, because of the, the 
fact that the uh, Mr. Hampton contests who initiated it. The only evidence in this record that would suggest that Mr. Hampton did not initiate it is his self-serving declaration of inadmissible hearsay that Kodelsky told him they wanted to terminate his employment. You cannot accept that testimony for the truth of what of what it says because it is classic textbook hearsay. Now there is some suggestion in why wouldn't that be an admission with against interest? Well, because Kudelski is not a party, Your Honor. Uh, it was not a statement attributed to Mr. Kohler, but to the successor entity. Now, Mr. Hampton argues in his brief that you can consider inadmissible hearsay about what he claims the Kudelski executive said to him, even though they all deny it. Uniformly, they all deny it. But this is, and he's relying on the Financial Timing Publications case, but that is an inaccurate reading of that decision. Financial timing publications does not allow the court to consider, or excuse me, to rely on inadmissible hearsay. In that case, there was other admissible evidence upon which the court relied to determine that there was a fact issue requiring a trial. And there's also a reference to an expression in the Celotex U.S. Supreme Court case. But what that court held was that the evidence does not have to be in a form that is admissible in trial. All that means is that a party can submit by affidavit what they will then be able to put into trial at evidence by way of either deposition or live testimony. It does not mean that we ignore the rules of hearsay. And this statement by, by, the, by the plaintiff, by Mr. Hampton himself, will not be admissible at trial because he, again, has nobody else who can support it. The guys from Kodelsky, the executives, absolutely refuted it. They said no such thing to him. So the only way that comes into evidence is if it's by Hampton, and that is classic hearsay. It will not come in. The Smith versus Kilgore case, which I don't believe we cited in our brief, discusses this uh, issue that's found at 926 F3rd 479. In a similar result with Judge Loken on the panel uh, back in 2018 was the Jessenoski versus Countrywide Home Loans decision, where summary judgment was uh, upheld despite a self-serving affidavit that contained inadmissible hearsay. And that case is found at 883 F3rd 1010, specifically page 1014. I'd like to turn to um, oh, one, one other point on that. I believe my colleague will assert that they are trying to get this hearsay evidence in the record because it's not being offered for the truth of the matter that they actually told him this, but instead for its impact on Mr. Hampton himself. But that doesn't matter. It becomes a material issue if you are looking at it for its impact on him. But all he had to do was to sit tight until the escrowed amount would vest and he would either be terminated without cause, as was allowed under 16b, guaranteeing him the right to participate or they would have kept him employed. So what he was thinking at the time doesn't matter. It's well, does it matter that the company has come to him and told him that if he's unwilling to uh, do as they would desire to do uh, with him, send him overseas, that uh, they would terminate him? No, Your Honor, it doesn't. Number one, again, that's absolutely denied by everybody at Kodelsky, but 
and, and so it would be again inadmissible hearsay but even if it were true then what he should do is take the termination if they're going well, to why, why couldn't it be a fact issue whether the presentation to him of a separation agreement was in fact a, a statement of their intent to to obtain his termination because your honor it wouldn't matter even if that was their intent all he had to do was wait for them to to pull off the termination rather than jumping into a mutually agreed upon termination which precludes him under the post-closing agreement from any recovery he had to be terminated without cause and he had to wait for it to actually happen if he was going to be entitled to participate in the escrowed amounts otherwise all of those issues become immaterial and what's how whose responsibility is it to interpret the meaning of without cause uh, in terms of whether when the when the parties when that separation agreement uses that phrase that it's without cause from either party the 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 court needs to look back to the actual employment agreement uh, that Mr. Hampton had with Milestone. There it define, there it explains the various types of cause that can exist. Uh, and that employment agreement is expressly incorporated by reference in the post-closing agreement where it refers to a termination without cause. So it is based on those contracts and the incorporation of those two contracts that we arrive at what a without cause termination is. And um, some unwillingness to go abroad would not have constituted cause. I'm sorry, Judge Lincoln. Counsel, the, the question was, who decides? The answer is the court, right? Yes. That is the answer. The court, looking at the contract language, absolutely. Yes. Uh, the, uh, Mr. Hampton argues that Judge Frank improperly looked to extrinsic evidence to determine the purpose of the agreement. And my colleague suggested to you a moment ago that a purpose of the post-closing agreement was to make Kodelsky happy. That's absolutely untrue and there is nothing in the record to support it. You don't have to look beyond the four corners of the post-closing agreement to determine what its purpose was. It states in sections one and sections three that its purpose was to, it was to require that Hampton stay there through the escrow dates or uh, separate termination without cause under the language of the employment agreement. It states this in two places that he has to remain there in order to collect. So ju the judge at the district court level, Judge Frank, would not have to look outside that contract to arrive at that conclusion, but there is absolutely nothing that suggests that the purpose of the post-closing agreement, to which Kudelski was not even a party, was to make them happy. But we do have the declaration of Mr. Kohler in the record where he explains, and he was a party to the post-closing agreement, where he explains why this was important to him and it was to make sure that Mr. Hampton was still there rowing the boat, the boat towards the achievement of these earnout objectives in order to improve the amount that everybody would recover. Uh -huh. One other point that I just want to touch upon involving the Capistrant decision um, and this issue of materiality, because it's been briefed extensively, I would just emphasize that the Capistrant Court, the Minnesota Supreme Court, did not remand the case 
because it found the, the contract issued to be immaterial, but because it appeared the district court and the Court of Appeals in Minnesota had failed to consider materiality. Judge Frank absolutely considered the materiality of this requirement that Mr. Hampton remain employed. Thank, Thank you, you. Mr. Harris. Mr. McNeil, you have two and a half minutes. Thank you, Your Honor. If I could go back and address the... If I can interrupt, right, I'm sorry to do it right away, but there's one fact that I find crucial that I'd like to see if you can overcome, and that is that your client testified at his deposition that the termination was by mutual consent. Thank you, Your Honor. Yes, so if I could, that's exactly the point I wanted to address in my last two minutes. It goes back to Judge Loken's question. Why do we need to go outside of this because the documents say what it is? He did sign off on a separation agreement that was presented to him by Kodalski. What our point is, and you'll see it in his deposition transcript, is this was negotiating the terms of surrender. So they were coming to him and saying, we don't need you except for this one purpose. Will you stick around to help us get this contract? Sign on for a consulting agreement. Here's a separation agreement that we're asking you to sign off on. He agrees to that. That still meets the definition of termination without cause by Kodalski because they're the ones that drafted this document and presented it to them. How does it do that if it's by mutual consent? Termination by Kodalski implies that it is against my will, against my consent. It seems to me those two things are not compatible. I think they are compatible because this happens all the time. When an employee is being let go, the terms of surrender are, do you want the severance agreement or are you just going to walk away from it? You're still terminated. You're still done. In this circumstance, everybody's helped. It worked out well for everybody, even Mr. Kohler. When Mr. Kohler was looking for his escrow payments to be met, they were still met here. He got everything he had coming to him. This is just a total windfall for him. He didn't lose out on anything. Kodalski was happy. They didn't lose out on anything. They still had their customer contract renewed. Hampton was let go and not replaced. That's what Kodalski testified to. Once they let him go, they didn't replace him. All of his job responsibilities went to other people. No replacement. No new chief technology officer. Gave it all to somebody else. He still did his part. I understand what Judge Loken's question was. By signing that agreement, is that mutual consent? Isn't that enough? First of all, we're not conceding that 16B is the only way to be terminated. 16A still applies too. How do I know that? Because the contract doesn't specifically reference 16B in the post-closure, the PCA. It references the employment agreement broadly. It doesn't necessarily mean it has to be. That's the only way it can be terminated. Thank you, Mr. McNeil. Thank you, Your Honor. The court wishes to thank both counsel for your presence in our virtual forum this morning to hear this case. We thank you for the argument you've provided to the court, the briefing that's been submitted, and we'll take the case under advisement, render decision in due course. Thank you both.